in the same day, you feel this just horror of how violent a person can be, whether it's justified or not, you get this sense of just the violence and destruction. And within minutes, you get this sense of togetherness and humanity. So it, it's really incredible what I've been able to experience because I, I really get to see the worst in people, but I also get to see the best in humanity. And that's really what gives me hope. It's the hope that kills you. This is a common phrase in the world of international soccer and was brought to my attention after I recently watched the season finale of one of my favorite shows right now, Ted Lasso on Apple Plus TV. Now, as Ted and his team are facing a season defining game, he leans on his coaching team to find an action plan that will foster hope in winning this game. And it's looking pretty bleak. His coaches shut him down, and the more they protected with the certainty that winning was not possible, the more fired up he got. At one point, he dramatically left the room he was in with his coaching team, only to just as dramatically re-enter with one of his infamous handmade signs that read, Believe, which he reported he keeps right by his bathroom mirror. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Ted Lasso is unabashedly hopeful, but not in a Pollyanna or bypassing the hard things kind of way. He believes in possibility. He is all in believing winning is possible and deeply committed to developing a plan that helps pave the way to this possibility. Everything is on the table and he is willing to risk heartbreak in the process. The belief that hope will kill you is a common reason many reject the practice of hope. So many people would rather keep the bar low and expect the worst. Protecting with this next level cynicism leads to living a negative, small, and joyless life. And we're not here for that. Whether you have experienced the crushing loss of a sports team you love, and I'm a Minnesota sports fan, so I get this deeply, or carry the even deeper burdens of hope crushed by failure, betrayal, loss, hope can feel dangerous and reckless. Embracing hope, like Ted Lasso, looks on the surface dangerous and reckless. In truth, it is a deeply aligned practice grounded in values, courage, and consistency. He would rather be unabashedly all in, uncool and true to his beliefs, than live and lead small. His leading with hope is contagious and ends up fostering creativity they come up with some interesting plans for that game, deep connection, and trust. It helps him and his team show up, even when the odds are totally against them. This kind of hope supports showing up when there's no evidence things will get better or be better. Now, some of the most hopeful leaders I know have been through some of the darkest experiences. They have a capacity for the whole human experience. They're often seen as uncool and too positive, but really they're the grittiest people I know. Their hope does not bypass the messiness of heartache, disappointment, betrayal, but instead they repel cynicism in these moments and embrace it all. My recent interview with Chef Joel Gameron, who is a Ted Lasso with food and in the kitchen, made me appreciate how his cooking scrappy principles, working with what we have, even the things we want to discard to make something amazing, also applies to leadership and hope. A hope that allows for loss and disappointment is a scrappy hope. And a scrappy hope allows for all the highs and lows of humanity including feelings of futility, doubt, and fear, while also allowing us to keep moving forward, connected to our purpose and meaningful work, even when it is hard to see a better outcome than what certainty tells us. 
Now, those who dare to hope know pain is a part of the gig. Those who choose hope just keep taking the actionable steps towards what they believe possible, even when the future is still unknown. My guest today embodies this kind of scrappy hope with all of its shadows. He has faced deep loss and grief personally, and now reports on the stories of loss and tragedy while keeping cynicism at bay and maintaining his scrappy hope. Ramon Galindo is a bilingual reporter and producer with NBC San Diego with more than a decade of experience in television journalism. From politics to criminal justice to the economy, Ramon strives to tell the stories from a unique perspective. His work aims to hold government and powerful institutions accountable while being a voice for the unheard. You will quickly learn why I wanted to have Ramon on the show. Ramon's hope feels how he leads in his work as a reporter and shares how it took root after a personal tragedy planted the seeds of his deep commitment to tell the stories of those that often get overlooked. Notice how Ramon navigates reporting the tragic, the gruesome, and the highly charged social unrest and still holds hope for humanity without bypassing the hard and pay attention to Ramon's influence and support systems in his life. He reminds us Scrappy Hope is a hope never done alone. Now I'm so thrilled to welcome Ramon Galindo to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Ramon, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. You know, as I just mentioned to you before we started recording, we met about a little over a year ago and you had interviewed me or reached out to interview me for our local NBC affiliate here in San Diego um, right after the horrific shootings in both El Paso and also at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, which is near Monterey, Central Coast, California. And right before we started interviewing you shared with me, and this, again, this is still with me to this day. You shared with me that you had family at both the Walmart where the shooting in El Paso happened minutes before the shooter was there. And also family that were at the festival in Gilroy, which is near where you grew up. And I'm just wondering how you were navigating covering this story when it was so close to home for you. Yeah, it's it's quite unbelievable. And, and I can't believe it was a year ago because, I mean, those I two stories were so huge. And yet a year later, I mean, those sort of stories uh, have kind of gone by the wayside because of COVID. But yeah, I mean, when we're going through that, I know I mentioned to you that I had family members at both places just, uh, you know, within minutes uh, of those shootings happening uh, at the Geroy Festival. I grew up maybe 20, 30 minutes away from there. And uh, my parents happened to be at the festival just minutes before the shooting happened. And when I'm in my breaking news mode, I was working at the time, I really wasn't thinking, are my loved ones there? Should I be worried? I just kind of jumped into, I'm the messenger, so I have to go research, get that information, put it out to the public. It wasn't until a little while later when my mom or when my sister mentioned that uh, my parents were at the festival and they can't get a hold of them, where all of a sudden your heart starts pumping a little bit. And thankfully, I was able to get a hold of, of my mother really quickly. And it was interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm worried sick. And I figured that they would be also worried. They just avoided a mass shooting. And it was interesting to talk to my mother and see how relaxed she was. And kind of the bigger thing on her brain was, well, your dad's been really grumpy today. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she was able to disconnect herself a little bit. And I don't know if it's because... Uh, they're used to violence or it, it hadn't hit them at that time. But in that in that moment, that's how they were processing it. For me, I was in full work mode. So I'm trying to uh, stay emotionally away from it. But at the same time, adding the context and background that I am able to offer because I am from that area, because I am familiar with what's happening there. So in 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 the moment, I guess as a reporter and as a journalist, you do have to kind of separate yourself emotionally from the moment in, in the way that firefighters and police do the same thing where they're at a traumatic or, or, or very catastrophic uh, 
situation where they have to separate themselves a little bit, take themselves away from the emotion of the event and and really do their job. So that's kind of the way that I that I took that shooting and news event in particular. When it comes to the Walmart shooting in El Paso, which kind of happened around the same time, uh, that was a little bit different. And that hit some emotional triggers for me a little bit differently as well, because uh, when we're also reporting on that, I, I believe that was a much larger shooting where there are many, many more victims. And, and, and as we learned more about that shooting in particular, we learned that the shooter had these racial motivations that he specifically targeted that store because of uh, the large Latino population that would be there at the time. And it was uh, hours later that I found out that my uncle who lives in Juarez across the border was at that store a short time before the shooting happened. So when you hear those sort of things, it's like, it's like, wow. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it, it definitely hits you for a second. And then after a while you jump back into storyteller mode and say, okay, I I've learned that lesson. My family is safe. Now my, um, my priority is telling the story of these other victims, these other family members. And that's really the hardest part, I think, about the job is once you get past the initial catastrophic emergency event and start dealing with the emotions of the victims and their family members, that's really what makes these these really big events uh, uh, really tough for a storyteller like myself. Because it's interesting as these stories... Not that they're about you, but they're they're so connected to who you are and your story. And you tell stories so well. I mean, I've been following you since we met. And um, I just really I see that in your storytelling, in the journalism. And my gosh, the news this last year. I mean, you've been on the front lines with I mean, I noticed you were there in La Mesa town here in San Diego, which experienced a lot of destruction after the protests and people then took to rioting and covering it from a real multidimensional perspective. I'm so appreciative about that. And and one thing you just said, though, when you were talking about talking to your mom, I want to circle back with, and she was more worried about your dad being grumpy, right? And then you said, I'm not sure because they were processing because they were used to violence, like maybe no violence is no big deal. Can you tell me a little bit more about that statement? Sure. Well, it, it's something that uh, troubles me about just violent areas here in America and really all around the world that in, in a sense, sometimes we're, we, we're living in communities that are so plagued by violence that in a way we're a little bit desensitized to it. Uh, I grew up in a in a city with uh, a very high amount of gang violence. Uh, my my mother grew up in Ciudad Juarez, which is one of the most violent cities in the world. And my yeah. my father grew up in Mexico City, which has its own very serious crime problem. So so shooting and violence is not something new. It's not something that is new to them. And it's not something that is new to me, unfortunately, either. You know, from a very young child, uh, I had friends who were shot. Uh, when I was in high school, I had friends who were killed. And, and I even talked to my cousins who are from Juarez, who tell me where all the executions happen and they and they talk about it so nonchalantly and it's really troubling to see that children are able to speak about these catastrophic events so nonchalantly because you know that deep down it, it's definitely having an effect on them but when they're telling the story in the moment as if it was hey you know uh junior threw a rock at me oh so and so was murdered here it, it, it's really frightening that we kind of live in a world where these sort of violent events have become a little bit normal. So in that sense, I wouldn't say that uh, my family members or myself have become desensitized to the violence itself. But, you know, at the risk of sounding callous or insensitive, uh, many times uh, these acts of violence are not uh, surprises. So huh. we definitely... Uh, want to tell the story and I want to tell the story of the victims and and why things happen. And hopefully once you get dig a little bit deeper as to why things happen and why people took their actions, people get a little bit of a better understanding of, of, of why people take those actions. And, and, and perhaps we can 
do some things, some preventative measures in hopes that that these things don't happen again. But really recognizing uh, that these events are happening and why are, is really the first step in in hopes of preventing these sort of things in the future, I think. So I'm hearing a couple of things here that you want to tell the whole like there is it. You, you're noting that especially young kids, but anyone who's grown up around violence, it's there's a, maybe some that are desensitized. But if anything, it's normalized. And that in itself is still the tragedy. And for you, it sounds like, and I want to hear more about this drive to tell these stories, because for you, there's there's the personal part, at least what I'm hearing is there's a desire for prevention, pre- desire to not have this just be another like salacious, dramatic news story, but get behind the three-dimensional aspect of the why and the who. Is that, is that right? Uh, absolutely. And I think you know the the careers and the passions that we pursue definitely our our past experience have a lot to do with the way that we pursue <laughs> them and the direction that we move the path that we take and i i think that's very much the case for myself as well i remember being in high school and not really having a lot of direction or really having a lot of goals or or wanting to even go to college anything like that i mean i i grew up in a in a gang neighborhood where if you're a gangster, you get all the pretty girls and you get the money and you get to have fun. And if you're a good student like I was, uh, you're not getting any of the girls and people don't think that you're cool. And and they're, they're in the short term, there doesn't seem to be any reward for that. So, so when I was going through high school, I really didn't have any goals of going to college. And honestly, I felt like dropping out. Thankfully, you know, I was in sports and I was really into sports and I figured that was going to be my way out of uh, a gang neighborhood. And then when I was about 15, a close friend of mine who I grew up with, uh, Jose, he was shot right around the corner from my home. And I remember it like it was yesterday because I, I heard the gunshots and I saw his car there which at the time I didn't realize, but he was uh, dead inside. So for a teenager, that's a huge, really eye-opening experience. And I was getting into trouble and I was looking around the room and I was seeing all these other people who were getting in trouble. And I just kind of, you reach this level of clarity, I guess you can say, and you start thinking, okay, do I want to continue on this path that all these people all this group is going towards which is cool now but where is the future in it or do i need to reevaluate and look at my strengths look at what i can contribute and move forward in that way and ultimately that is what i chose and the the murder of my friend jose really plays a, a large part into my reporting and my ability to question a little bit more because that murder was not in the news and like many other murders of young men and women uh, who live in underprivileged neighborhoods, many times their uh, their killing just gets a, a tiny blurb in the paper or not even a tiny blurb in the paper because their death happened to be in a gang neighborhood. So it must be gang related. So we're not going to report on that. But so many times, so many of the victims of, of gang violence are not gang members. But their names and their stories are forgotten because because they were living in an underprivileged neighborhood, because they happened to have a cousin who was a gang member. So even though they were not criminals, even though they have a really important story that we can learn from, unfortunately, many times we don't hear that story in the news and we don't take the time to keep asking questions or keep revisiting the issues that led to that crime that led to that killing to led to that led to the assault why are there so many homicides in this neighborhood why have the why has the gang problem not been solved in this neighborhood so really you know the way that i was brought up in a very violent neighborhood in a very gang ridden neighborhood in a neighborhood where i knew many of the victims of gang violence including my own family uh, it really has given me a, a different perspective to bring to the table to where i am questioning a little bit more on why are we not covering more stories in this neighborhood why are not we not digging a little bit deeper into this crime and why it's happening Oh my gosh, so much, so much there, Ramon. Thank you. And I've got a couple follow-ups there, but first, I want to go back to your friend Jose. Yeah. Um, so you were fifteen. How old was Jose? Uh, he was around that same age, around fifteen, sixteen. So we're about sophomore juniors in high school. And he was a good friend of yours. 
Yeah, we grew up together. I mean, I knew him since first grade. And, um, you know, uh, as we got older, we started hanging out with different crowds. But, you know, uh, I think um, so I didn't hang out with him as much as I used to. I was hanging out with the jocks and he was hanging out with his buddies. And but we still went to school together. My mom picked him up from his house. My mom knew his mom. And uh, my mom was the one who told me that that he passed. And as a kid, um a lot of times you don't really know how to deal with those emotions and those events. Um, so at that time, my 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 decision was to not even go to the funeral and not really acknowledge it. So and I think mm -hmm. and I think no matter what age you are, a lot of times you kind of put your emotions on the back burner and you, you just don't want to deal with them at the time. So you didn't go to the funeral because uh, I figured uh, it's one of those things where you can't believe it and you just don't want to mm -hmm. see your your friend in a casket. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I mean, I think your your ability to process those emotions changes over time and it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't mean that you're better at processing those emotions. But in that moment, it was one of those things that I can't believe this is happening. I can't deal with it, deal with it right now. Uh, so I'm just not going to deal with it right now. And did you ever find out why Ramon was murdered or why Jose was murdered? Uh, no, I, I didn't. There were a lot of rumors and I just kind of, you know, um, didn't want to get into the whole rumorville and I was a teenager and you know it was it was one of those things where I I wasn't so concerned about the why but mm -hmm. I was thinking okay what would Jose want us to do next and you know for my part my small thing that I could do is you know get my stuff together so to speak get out of high school get out of this town and use my talents to tell these sort of stories that really ne needed to be told because I, I I was growing very frustrated that uh, a story like the killing of my friend who was a good person whose mother was just grieving profoundly was not a story that was being told in the news. So I, I was hoping to bring that sort of perspective from a underserved community from a bilingual community, from a community that was ignored many times to a, a more mainstream audience, which thankfully I'm able to uh, tell stories to now. That's so evident. And and one more just, just background. You said that prior to Jose's death, you were getting into trouble. Was this, what was going on with you right before his death personally? Well, that's, <laughs> there's a lot of layers to that, I guess you could say, but, uh, you know, you, there, I face, I, I, I figure a lot of the same pressures that teenagers are, are facing right now with, with anxiety and, um, being challenged in school and, uh, feeling inadequate when it comes to talking to girls or feeling inadequate when it comes to you know, what your teachers expect from you, what your parents expect from you. So a lot of times you feel those expectations on your shoulders and you're like, I just want to throw them off. I don't want to go to college. You know, I I know you guys think that I'm smart, but I don't want to do these things that you want me to do. I, I want to do my own thing. And a lot of times we do put a lot of pressure on, on children, especially, you know, children who we think that are especially gifted. I, I was... Uh, in gifted classes when I was a child. And eventually I hit the point where I was like, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to play a musical instrument anymore. I don't want to go into these honors classes anymore. And in a way it was a little bit of a pushback to where there were these really high expectations of my brother and I, we were honor students. We were overachievers in sports. We were really well behaved. And you get to this certain point, especially when you're a teenager and you're going through all these physical changes and you're going through all these emotional changes to where you just feel like, okay, I give up. I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to go away to college. I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to hang out with my parents. And and that's all I'm going to do, which is nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, for me, that path was not the right path for me. And eventually I did reach this, I guess, moment of clarity, which sometimes traumatic events do to you, right? Where absolutely, where I wasn't as lost anymore. I was like, oh, okay. I remember what I was supposed to do. I remember what my strengths are. I remember what my parents told me. And they, they've been putting me on the right path 
this whole time. Let me get back on that path. So I I feel like I had a lot of the same issues that teenagers are facing today of, uh, of, you know, boys and girls liking each other. You know, I have acne. Oh my goodness. Uh, this is the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, I want to play sports, but my parents don't want to play sports. So a lot of the same pressures that teenagers are facing today, it was, I, I was facing the same way and we kind of react to them in different ways. So for me, I would ditch school. I wouldn't do my homework, uh, things like that. And so I would find myself in detention with all these gang members and and other people who were not doing their best in high school. And I kind of realized, hey, this is not me. This is not my life. This is not what my parents raised me to do. Let me kind of get my stuff together and, and, and get back on the path that I, that I should be going towards. And, and the the trauma, the shock and the subsequent burdens of of Jose's death sounds like it really you were already rumbling with that. And that was a fork in the road for you. Is, am I hearing that correctly? Oh, wonder, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it was around that time, I feel like that I finally realized, hey, what am I doing? Why? Why would I stay here? And even before then, I mean, I knew I was not in a safe place. I had hard, had these conversations with my parents before. And that's the other conflict also, because coming from a, a, a Mexican household, a lot of times you want to keep your family close. And that was my whole intention. Pretty much my whole life is to always be close to my family physically and emotionally. Thankfully, I'm still close to them emotionally, but I, I, I live very, very far from them. So this expectation of, you know, you have to go to college and be successful, but also stay at home close to your parents was another thing that I rebelled against um, because eventually I figured out if I stay close to home, I'm not going to reach my full potential. And that kind of caused a new conflict within my family once they saw that uh, there were other adults having a large influence in my life and that that influence would eventually take me further away from them physically. Uh, that was a big conflict in in my house as as a young person, because um, I think in in traditional American culture, you kind of expect your kids to go off to college, kind of wherever. A lot of times to the East Coast. In in my household, that was not the case. You were expected to stay home, <laughs> to stay close to mom, and so that was just kind of another challenge that that I had to overcome. Once I figured out, okay, I have to get out of this town that's full of gangs that has no sort of economic opportunity for what I want to pursue, uh, that caused other conflict. But eventually, yeah, the the traumatic experience of dealing with Jose's death, along with just kind of the outside influences, positive influences, of course, that I was getting from other adults in my life at that time, really kind of projected my, my trajectory towards, hey, I got to get out of uh, the hood, as some people would say, I got to get out of the hood. I got to make the best of my life. And then once I get the opportunity, I'm going to come back and tell the stories of my neighborhood, of the type of people that I grew up with, so that hopefully, you know, the world sees these problems and we can talk about it and hopefully come up with some solutions. Who were some of the other adult influences that were positive and spoken to your life at that time? So b besides my family, uh, I'm very grateful to have had an, an amazing teacher, Mr. Cornelio. I think everybody has that amazing yes. teacher, sometimes a couple amazing teachers that just kind of motivate you to to go above and beyond. And Mr. Cornelio was was one of them. And it, it, it just kind of coincided with the death of Jose, where I was into in Mr. Cornelio's class right afterwards. And a big part of his class was public speaking, debating, learning how to communicate. He would teach us all these communication skills and you were forced to go in front of the class and um, state your case as if you were an attorney and give speeches and give debates and argue both sides and research. And I thought all these things were amazing, amazing mm. things. I had never been stimulated in high school up until this class. And I was having so much fun talking in front of the class, explaining these really uh, difficult topics when, it, you know, from abortion to the death penalty to uh, all these controversial topics that we would have to debate in class. 
I was having such a great time researching and presenting all these facts that I had uh, come up with. And I said, hey, maybe I'll be a newsman. And that kind of helped me focus on, okay, now I have a goal. What do I have to do to get there? So uh, having that inspirational teacher, that was Mr. Cornelio. That was that was the person for me. And besides him, uh, outside of work, I had a I had a really interesting relationship with the family who I worked for. I, I worked for the water company in Salinas, and this was a family who definitely had a lot of money. They were uh, they owned a lot of property and. They were getting a lot of money. Everyone had to pay their water bill. Everyone uses water. <laughs> so, so, so this family that I worked for, uh, thankfully, they brought me in very close. They were much different from my family. They had money. Uh, I was. I grew up very poor. This family was very entrepreneurial. Uh, always about pursuing money, and, and there's benefits and negative things to that. But being able to be surrounded by someone who is very entrepreneurial, very driven, very goal oriented, very challenge oriented, really kind of opened my mind to a lot of different perspectives and kind of got me out of the mind frame of, okay, I have to stay here close to my family uh, forever. And that's just the way that it has to be. For me at that moment, I didn't think that there was another option, but being with this family that traveled and started businesses and pursued very large goals, very large projects and followed through on these goals and projects really gave me a different perspective on like on what on on the direction that I should pursue, on the challenges that I pursue, that I shouldn't just stay home because it's more comfortable. I should actually go as far away from my home to feel that discomfort and challenge myself to be a better person, to be a better student, and hopefully be a better journalist. And I think in the end, that that proved to be the, the case. Wow. So it's like this beautiful combination of the impact of your parents, um, an incredible teacher, and an employer with an entrepreneurial spirit that brought that innovation. And it's one thing I love about entrepreneurs is they have a high capacity for discomfort. That's kind of, that's the thing. <laughs> He's going to move through it and because there is so much uncertainty. And so those are powerful, powerful influences. How um, I, I want to just stay, one more question about you and how you care for you. And then I want to move to what you're doing right now with your work, which is amazing. Um, how do you care for yourself as you know, and, and manage your humanity so you don't get cynical, you don't harden up? I mean, trauma, trauma has a way of like, if we don't, move it through our bodies and through our psyches, it can really do a number. So how do you continue to care for yourself and stay connected to your humanity while covering the stories that you do? Yeah. And I think um, we could always do a better job at caring for ourselves, myself <laughs> included, and even people who are kind of working on themselves, we can always care for ourselves better. And I was just thinking about this the other day, and I tell people a lot about it is that early on in my career, I, I never took vacation. Uh, the first, I would say, 12 years of my career, I never took more than three days off of work. It wasn't until I was maybe 33 or 34 years old that I decided to take a two-week vacation to Europe. That had never happened in my entire career. And uh, a lot of that had to do, again, with my parents. I, I used to be a correspondent in Los Angeles where I was traveling around the country reporting the news. I wouldn't be home for two or three weeks at a time. I, it was a seven day uh, a week job. I was always on call and I was, you know, making appearances like this. I was interviewing celebrities. I was from the outside having just a spectacular career, but my family could tell that I was all mixed up in my brain. Mm. So my dad one day just said, stop and slow down. And I tell this to people now who are, you know, again, entrepreneurs just hustling, always doing this thing, making great money. And I said, you know, I've been there, just slow down. So their advice has been just priceless because as simple as that, those little words are, it it really resonates because I've been able to, you know, first off, take vacation. Uh, <laughs> I value my vacation and time off much more. Uh, I'm much better at checking out once, you know, my, my, my day is done. I usually work 10, 11 hours a day, but which is still a, a little excessive, but 
I'm a lot better at checking out. And a lot of it is going into nature. I mean, I, I think that people that follow me see that I'm a, a nature enthusiast, which is something that I've doubled down on the older that I get, uh, you know, mostly or partly for my own mental health to keep myself just separated from the the craziness that is the news cycle, the craziness that is crime, the craziness that is the pandemic, the craziness that is the social strife that we're seeing. It's really important for me to tell those stories with clarity and fact and, and conviction. But for me to be able to have that clear mind, I really have to be able to check out for some times or for some time. And sometimes that, that means going out to the wilderness by myself, not even being with other humans, just being one with nature. So uh, the older that, that I get, I feel like I, I get a little bit better at separating myself from work. And I think that's really, really important because I feel like we are so driven these days and the competition is so heavy, so intense to be at the top of your industry, whether it be journalism, uh, whatever it is that you are doing, there's so much pressure to be at the top of your game, to impress your boss, to impress the audience that a lot of times we have to, that a lot of times that we forget to take care of ourselves, to take care of our brain to check out a little bit. And we're going to be successful either way if we continue to work hard and have the integrity. But you really have to take care of yourself, not to just to be successful in your career, but to be successful in your family. Because if you're bringing that stress of excess work, of excess pressure back into your relationships, whether it be your kids or your partner, um, it's just going to make things more stressful. So thankfully, I've been able to check out a little bit more. And thankfully, I have a really good circle around me to where I when I do experience these traumatic events, uh, like these mass shootings, like the riots in La Mesa, I am able to talk it out with with my circle of people. I do have my friends and families and and people who I trust who you who you can go to. So besides checking out for some time, I think it's really important to have that circle of people who you're able to share your deeper emotions with who you are able to kind of process with what you're going through at that moment because really the hardest part of my job is not necessarily the immediacy of breaking news going to see the violence or the tragedy in its initial stages the most difficult part is dealing with the victims families in the aftermath a, a woman who was murdered last week her family still mourning still crying probably one of the most difficult stories i ever had to cover was a massive chemical explosion in texas where 15 people died and over a two-week period, I met the families of almost every one of those 15 people. Wow. And I went to their funerals. And at the end of those two weeks, I mean, I was not emotional during those two weeks when I was dealing with those families. Mm -hmm. I was very straight-faced and stuck to doing my job and determined to finding as many human stories as possible. But once those two weeks were over and my boss told me that I could finally go home, I pretty much collapsed because of the physical and emotional drain that that had put on my body. So I almost quit the business after that story. And um, but having a, a a solid family who was able to give me the right advice and um, point me in the right direction as far as kind of regaining my mental and physical strength, uh, I was able to persevere. And and I won't say that there haven't been other moments where these emotional issues have kind of questioned the direction or the career direction that I've taken. But um, I think the older that I get, I'm a little bit better at coping with those issues and separating myself from the stress of the situation. Was Were you still working in LA when you were covering the Texas yeah, Texas. It was that when your father said, Ramon, slow down yeah. around the same time. Yeah, it happened a little bit after that. I remember having a conversation with my with my brother after that story. And I told him, you know, I, I just want to quit my job and go go back to the beach and uh, get married and have babies. And that's all I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. Um, I'm so uh, I'm so burnt out. And, you know, a lot of us experience that burnout, really, you know, uh, whether it's a financial catastrophe or a, an emotional catastrophe, we feel that burnout. 
And I was feeling it at that time. And to, um, and I think shortly after that, I mean, it was definitely affecting my relationship. I think I had a really bad breakup right after that. And to deal with the kind of trauma of my work and the trauma of this relationship ending, I just buried myself into work even more. And so I was reporting and I had all these other projects going on and um, I had more money coming in and I had all these job offers coming in. And from the outside looking in, you could see, hey, look, this guy has everything. You know, he has a uh, they give him extra money to buy clothes. They give him extra money to go shopping, this and that. He travels around the country. But my parents could see that my brain was just a big just a mix of things happening. There was too much stuff going on in my brain. I had no focus. And at that point, my dad was just like, slow down. You don't have to do a hundred things at one time. And I feel like a lot of people have that mentality when they wake up, which I also used to have, which is like, okay, what's the next big story? Other people might say, okay, how am I going to make big bucks today on the stock market? Or what am I going to, which business am I going to start? So for us people who are very success driven and very ambitious, a lot of times we wake up, you know, thinking, okay, I got to do all these things. I got to do all these things. But sometimes we need that person who is a little bit more grounded and can see the turmoil that we're going through from the outside in to tell us, okay, slow down. You can do all these things but you don't have to do them all at the same time. So having that family support for me at that time in my life was was really crucial and really has played a big role in the way that I'm living my life right now. Because even though I may not make as much money as I used to, I feel like my mental health is probably in a better place because I don't have so many things on my shoulders that I feel like I'm responsible for. Mm. You know, Ramon, I, I've the privilege of being able to see you right now. And I know when you were talking about the chemical explosion in Texas, I saw a lot of emotion pass through you. And I'm struck that you went to 15 funerals and knowing that you didn't go to Jose's funeral and can't help but connect. That's, I mean, 15 funerals for, I don't care how emotionally resilient <laughs> and trauma informed you are. That's a lot of loss to sit with. And can help but wonder about the loss you were sitting in the moment with those, but also from your own story. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that's the thing is like uh, a, a lot of times as as journalists and, you know, first responders, whether it be police, firefighters, hospital workers, we're dealing with this sort of tragedy on a daily basis. Yet when we have to deal it, deal with it on our own, with our own family, with our own loved ones, we we become so detached that a lot of times we don't know how to deal with that. We don't know how to take it on. And and it's a work in progress. Uh, I've had other people who've died and uh, been to funerals and, and you still have issues with it. You still have <laughs> problems with, I mean, it, it's never easy for anybody to talk about death. Um, no. you know, whether, you know, whether you're talking about it with your spouse or, or your sibling or, or whoever it might be. I mean, it, it, it never gets easier and, and you deal with the situations a little bit differently as you, as you grow and learn. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's still difficult to, to deal with, with your own things and, it's definitely easier for me to to tell the story of of someone else because again you're looking at it from the outside in when totally. when you're yeah. when you're inside of that your your clarity may not be as good as far as communicating what you feel your clarity might be good as far as you know you're seeing things a little bit better but expressing those feelings is is extremely difficult and i think it's something that i and a lot of people struggle with it i I don't think that it gets any easier we just kind of gain new tools on deal dealing with that sort of stress i mean whether it's grief or uh, whatever difficult emotion it it is brave work to go there instead of to numb out and check out and that's also where we're most alive right i mean when we allow ourselves to go there and i really value what you said about just your own self-care practices you've you've really drilled down i follow you on instagram and you've inspired so many family hikes that i want to go on um and i'm like i keep telling my husband like we got to go on this hike and he's like the, the kids won't be able to do that hike that's, that's a hard one 
like, ah, but he found a waterfall. But you also have, I, I believe, a pit bull dog that you feature all the time. Yep. You have a pet that you love on. And is, is your dog a rescue? Uh, so, yes, uh, Dexter is a rescue. He's around 10 or 12 years old, but he acts like a little, he acts like a little puppy. Uh, he doesn't realize that he's this 75-pound ball of muscle. So he'll try to sit on your lap any chance that he gets. <laughs> oh, I can see the joy that that he brings you and getting out brings you. And I'm also just so thankful for your father. It reminds me of my husband. He's that person that can I can have the noise going on inside and outside of me. And he looks at me and he can say just he could say the slow down or you're safe, you're OK, or you can stop. And I, I can hear him. He, he's earned. There's those few people that can get through to me in those moments. And what a treasure to have you know, for your, for you to have your father. I know I'm so grateful for for my husband and those people when we're driven, when we're driven by because I'm hearing just this deep, the burdens of your childhood, of your story, of your lived experience is fueling your incredible life's work. And I, I, I the stories don't stop coming. Ramon, they do not stop coming. And so many people are are very cynical about journalism right now about, I mean, you wear many hats that many people attack right now or diminish and um, dehumanize. Um, and I think of you and others that I know that continue to be on the front lines, navigating the vitriol, navigating the dehumanization, and you are committed to continually telling the whole story. How... I, there's this is a two part question then. And so there's the part of, you know, doing the, I guess the first part of the question is how is that received in the business of the news? Right. Because telling a deep story isn't efficient. Right. I understand enough about the business. I have an undergrad in journalism and <clears throat> to know that it's, you know, 30 seconds later, that could be old news and things change and all of that stuff. But your commitment to how do you navigate your commitment to the fidelity of the whole story of wanting to tell stories that are preventative, that are healing, that are informing and connecting in a business that is so fast and furious and often fueled by other goals than you have? Yeah, 100%. That's a really good question because there is a lot of frustration and I'm not the only one that feels it because, I mean, we get into this business because we want to make a difference. We want to make an impact and we want to tell these people stories. And yeah, uh, just the nature of the beast, the nature of, of the format that we're in right now just doesn't lend to long form stories or in-depth reporting and investigations, uh, which can be very frustrating. And I think uh, uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, share that. And one positive thing, I guess you could say from this whole pandemic thing is that people are actually starting to want that a little bit more. They do want that in-depth conversation or that in-depth story about how people are feeling because so many people are feeling these really difficult emotions. I mean, they're going through financial catastrophe, family catastrophe, all while not being able to connect physically with other people. So I think that's something that people are yearning for right now. And 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 we're and I'm working as very hard as so are all of my colleagues to to try to bring that perspective and it, it is a time where the people in my industry are coming under attack and it's pretty much on a daily basis where I get some sort of comment about being fake news or uh, not telling the truth or uh, doing something dangerous because I'm I, I'm telling the story in a certain way and. I'm always curious to know why people say this. Uh, I get attacked quite often on social media and I never delete the comments. Uh, I actually leave them there so that people can can see what what is going through other people's minds. And I try not to judge the folks who are attacking me. Uh, I try to take a, a compassionate look at it and say, okay, I have all the same facts that you have. Why are you viewing this story in such a drastically different way than I am. So I try to, even though someone is attacking me or has this, what I would consider just an atrocious view on a news story, I always wonder, okay, why? Why do they think that way? Why Why are they attacking me? Why do they have this perspective that I think is a little bit messed up? And a lot of times 
you know, we hear these atrocious stories and people say, you know, what an animal, what a, you know, what a criminal, what a horrible person, lock them up or shoot them. Or we have this instinctual, uh, you know, lock them up forever. Don't ever let them out. Justice. Get justice, justice, justice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, and and it's one or the other. It's like you know, uh, send them on the stake, or or he's the victim. And there's no, and, and really the mm. truth. Th- there's so much gray area. There's such a huge gray zone, especially these days where we're living in such a polarized society politically. Anyways, uh, yes. where I mean, I I think we still love each other, and I, I still have a lot of faith in humanity, but politically, uh, we've been. Uh, separated so much recently that a lot of times we we miss that gray area and and that is part of the frustration that I deal with and that other uh, journalists also deal with because we do want to explain that gray area we do want to get deep into it we do want to explain all sides of the story sometimes it's not just two sides it's 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 multiple sides of a story um, but our medium unfortunately doesn't allow for the time of that because people want to get the news of the day and they want to get it quickly, which is totally understandable. And it is our system. But again, uh, you know, one of the uh, fortunate things about COVID is that people do have a little bit more time to process what's happening. They want to learn more. And, and those stories are getting a little bit more traction in these days where our, our attitudes are a little are changing a little bit. And even though we are polarized a little bit more politically, that does, in a sense, make people want to learn a little bit more about why they think about that way. And hopefully, eventually, people will get to that point where we're not polarized as much and we're a little bit more willing to hear out people who have a vastly different opinion than we are. And that that's, in the end, my hope, because uh, whether it be in my hometown, whether it be here, whether it be in Mexico, whether it be in Syria, there's so much conflict happening uh, many times because we're just not we refuse to listen to the person right across the street from us. So uh, hopefully the way that we're bringing the story and the way that we're able to give a little bit more depth to it in this time of pandemic eventually will help the healing that we have to do in, in our towns and in this country, really. No question. You really, you really call us up with that call to stay curious and to stay in our empathy and to really try and fight for perspective taking and that there's not just our view um, or the other, there could be more. And dang, is the gray, the gray zone is hard because there's not certainty there. There's not certainty and sitting in that can be really challenging for so many people. Yeah, well, it gets you out of your comfort zone to look at a perspective that is so that you consider to be horrible, right? I mean, a lot of times, <laughs> I, I, I mean, someone that disagrees with you politically, you're like, how could you think that way? I mean, where's your compassion? Where's your kindness? And then you kind of start digging a, a little bit deeper and you realize, well, that person probably thinks the same thing about you. <laughs> like, why would, why, why would you think that way? And, and then, so, you know, we're, we're at that point right now. And so what I'm hoping, because I do come from uh, an underprivileged background, because I, uh, I do come from immigrant parents, I'm going to bring this different perspective that enters into that gray zone. And I'm going to hopefully presented in a way that's understandable and in a way where people on all sides of uh, of the perspective can kind of look at it and say okay I still don't disagree with you but at least I'm I'm open my eyes are open and my ears are listening to the fact that there is a gray zone so I think that my hope again I have hope for humanity is that once the rhetoric and once the financial and emotional stress that so many of us are going through right now eases, and I have faith that it will ease. Uh, we're going to be able to tell those stories in the gray zone a little bit better, and hopefully the public understands that gray zone a little bit better, and hopefully we're able 
to communicate with each other and not be in constant conflict with each other. I appreciate your hope because that's one thing we absolutely have to have. If we don't have hope, that's when we check out and start to dehumanize and detach and numb. And hope is really really subversive and it's um and it's radical sometimes i i, I feel like people say it's pollyanna <laughs> you know and, and and i'm like i'll choose that any day to to fight for the humanity and to stay hopeful for the person in front of me who is saying or doing something that is so shocking to me to hope for that humanity is actually one of my most radical forms of self-care so i can keep showing up so i, I really appreciate that i'm wondering for you as we wrap up, is there something that's said or has been said or done to you recently or even in your career that stretches this humanity and hope? Is there what is there a time where you're like, oh, man, maybe I'm not going to come back from this? Is there what is happening as, as a journalist that really some, is there something that's happened that really pushed you to your edge? Oh, wow. That, that, that's a really good question. You know, uh, I guess one of the more recent examples that I can think of is something that we've been dealing with uh, nationwide and here in San Diego County is all the protesting and the issue of racial injustice and police brutality. And this is something that I've been re reporting on for years. And when I started reporting on this, you know, nearly a decade ago, I was labeled as radical or a cop hater or instigating uh, violence where it wasn't where it wasn't there and then mm. ferguson happened and that kind of put it all in front of everybody put it up in front of the mainstream and since then we made some progress but uh it's very little and then so i was uh pleasantly surprised to see all these protests this summer and when i had no idea that it would be this large or that so many people would turn out. So I'm always encouraged by people voicing their opinion. Um, but one of the really more significant events were these, uh, the rioting and the looting in La Mesa, which for people who don't know about La Mesa, I mean, it's a quiet town. It's the last place that you would expect this sort of violence to happen. And, but it did. And, and, that, and that's how these things happen. They're, they're, they're unexpected and then things blow up. And so I was there the night of the fires and it was unlike anything I had ever seen. And I've reported in LA, I've seen a lot of violence and I've been to Juarez, I've seen a lot of violence and I had never seen, you know, the center of a, a town burning, banks burning, buildings burning, uh, graffiti everywhere, uh, trash everywhere. And police just kind of standing there watching it. It was a, it was an extremely surreal scene for me. and. Um, you know, I was standing next to these fires and there's cars speeding by me and there was this sense of danger and this challenge for me to also give people the information and portray the emotion and the environment that I was in. It was just this surreal scene and I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I was questioning how this, how could this happen in La Mesa? How can this happen in this quiet little town? And I'm going through all these thought processes, still trying to get my job done and hold it together while I'm feeling all these emotions, just uh, in disbelief that this could be happening. Banks burning down, buildings burning down, seeing business owners just in tears because their life's work has been vandalized. And this is all happening in the middle of a pandemic. So everyone is especially emotional because they're broke. And they haven't been able to work for months. And so I'm going through this incredibly violent and challenging experience of telling the story of the, the, the vandalism and the looting and the protesting and the police violence. And then minutes later, I see hundreds of people pour in to the center of La Mesa. And I don't know if uh, you remember this part of the story, but hundreds of people from La Mesa and other parts of San Diego County came with their brooms. Everyone was wearing their masks and started picking up and cleaning up their city. Yeah, I remember that. By the hundreds, people started coming and cleaning the graffiti and cleaning up the broken glass and hugging each other. A mother and daughter who had started this salon immigrants from the Middle East were, their business had been devastated, but all their neighbors came 
and help them clean up. And I was there and they wanted to express how heartbroken they were, not only because of their business being destroyed, they were still heartbroken over George Floyd because let, wow. I mean, let, let's not forget how this all started. I mean, that was really like the, the match that lit everything on fire. There was already gas on the pile of wood. There was lots of gas, but that was the, that was the match that got the fire started. And even though these people were still mourning for George Floyd, all of a sudden they were dealt with this huge, huge adversity of being vandalized, of losing their business, of not knowing what's next, but still being inspired by their neighbors who came to help them and being feeling comfort that I was there to share their story. Wow. And so we're in the middle of COVID, so I'm not even supposed to be hugging everybody. I could tell that people want to hug me. <laughs> 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 and, and and a couple of people did. A couple of people shook my hand. Uh, you know, it's against the rules and don't I, I washed my hands and everything, but it was such an emotional moment that people could not contain themselves and they just wanted to touch each other. Even even if they couldn't touch each other physically, they were touching each other with the emotion in their eye and with just the the sense of community to where they were going to be there and help each other in the worst time that they had felt in a long time. So in the same day, you feel this just horror of how violent a person can be, whether it's justified or not, you get this sense of just the violence and destruction. And within minutes, you get this sense of togetherness and humanity. So it, it's really incredible what I've been able to experience because uh, I really get to see the worst in people, but I also get to see the best in humanity. And that's really what gives me hope. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that's a perspective many people have not had, right? Um, because you just get to catch the glimpses on social media or on the news. So I am deeply moved and I can see you are too sharing this. And it, it, it is such a good reminder that our capacity to commit immense violence is also the other side is commit and, and, and to, to deliver and connect immense love and community and belonging. We are powerful. We are so powerful and things are so complex. Um, I really am grateful for who you are and how you show up. You made a big impact on me and I'm so grateful I've been exposed to your work and how you show up. For those listening, how can people find you? How can they connect with you and your work? Yeah, I'm really easy to find. Uh, depends on what sort of social media that, that you like. I'm on Instagram, RamonGalindo.tv, where that one's a little bit more personal. I do a lot of my outdoor adventures, so I'm really big into inspiring people to get outdoors, especially Latino people. I, I had no idea that you know kids here in San Diego and in LA don't go to the beach very often. So I'm always encouraging people to get out, get in nature, enjoy it. And most of the times it's free. So Instagram at RamonGalindo.tv. Uh, my Facebook and my Twitter are a little bit more newsy, but you can find me there really easy. Just look up Ramon Galindo NBC, Ramon Galindo NBC, really easy to find. Wonderful, Ramon. Thank you again for your time today. I'm so grateful for all that you shared. And I know so many people are going to benefit from hearing your life's inspiration and how that's impacted your incredible work today. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate all it. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm very grateful to be here. And it's an honor and a privilege. Thanks, Rebecca. A scrappy hope has no room for cynicism. Instead of claiming the mantra, it's the hope that kills you. A scrappy hope believes it's the hope that saves you. A scrappy hope has room for pain and a respect for struggle and doubt. It knows hope is so much more than a feeling and serves as an anchor that feels agency and power. A scrappy hope believes in what is possible and working with what you have right in front of you, committing to try, knowing falls and failure are likely, sometimes highly probable. <laughs> Leaders who commit to do the deep work to expand capacity for discomfort and also love are able to spread scrappy hope amidst the fear, dread, and heartache. And gosh, we sure need that today, don't we? Where is cynicism impacting your scrappy hope? How can you cultivate more hope in your leadership in life? Who are those who support your scrappy hope and speak truth when you need it most? Ramon shows us how to lead through scrappy hope. 
where hope has its shadows, but is anchored in deep faith in humanity and clear actions that support his vision to tell stories in a way that changes culture. His hope is able to witness the best and the worst of us humans and still see it all connected to the human story he is so dedicated to tell. Cynicism will dismiss this kind of hope. Unburdened leaders will fully embrace it. Choosing scrappy hope over cynicism is not an easy shift, but it is an essential shift to make for leaders who are committed to deepening their own capacity to lead themselves well so they can lead others well. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you. And this will be the space where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo, inside and outside. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, along with free Unburdened Leader resources and ways to work with me at RebeccaChing.com.